0: Welcome back to the DeCarb Connect podcast. My name is Alex Cameron, and I'm the founder of DeCarb Connect. And with me is a repeat victim of the podcast. This is uh, Craig Golinowski, who is the president and managing partner for Carbon Infrastructure Partners, who has not only been on uh, been on the podcast before, but has joined us at our events. And it's yeah, great to have you back. Thank you so much, Craig.
1: Well, nice to be back. Thanks, Alex.
0: And this uh session. This recording is going to be the third in our series of viewpoints on energy crisis uh, and global instability. So we'll be talking to Craig about his view from across the pond on what's going on in Europe, but also how that plays in with uh, other kind of global uh, factors to create both challenges and maybe some opportunities for decarbonisation But we'll come to that in a minute, because for those of you who haven't heard uh, the first podcast that I did with Craig, um, it'd be useful to have a little bit of context. So, Craig, maybe you could give us your kind of summary of how have you arrived at this moment in time where you're leading carbon infrastructure partners, you're immersed in this world of decarbonisation, both for industry and oil and gas. Tell us the story of how you got here and and then we'll dive into the, the subject matter.
1: Yeah, great. Well, what you know, we've been uh, running, you know, oil and gas private equity funds at our company for 20 years. And, you know, I had an opportunity to, you know, spend some time on the Stanford campus. And, uh, I, you know, that's the first time I'd really understood what 40 billion tons a year really m- meant in terms of greenhouse gas emissions generally. And it struck me that, you know, it's a massive bulk quantity problem. Uh, I'm an energy professional, so I don't really I I believe that the future of humanity is that we need to produce and use more energy, not less. Um, And so it it occurred to me that, you know, I'd likely spend the rest of my career working on this dual problem of how do we provide energy for 8 billion people uh, and and, and not uh, dump a CO2 into the atmosphere.
0: And we were talking just before I hit record about what the last year has been like. If you if you could summarize your viewpoint, like what, what have you seen happen in 2022 um, that you consider both positives and also, you know, negatives or challenges to this whole discussion about the reduction of greenhouse gases?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost in 2022 is that some of the underlying, you know, weaknesses, perhaps, of energy policies that that have been, you know, generally anti-baseload any, you know, nuclear in Europe in particular, and uh, generally any fossil fuel, just generally, I think we're seeing the results of that, uh, or the beginnings of the results of that. Uh, we've also seen this year, you know, some big changes in the United States, in particular with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, with respect to carbon capture, uh, where the, you know, carbon capture is now, you know, very much seen as mainstream and, and, and we expect uh, to really see this industry take off uh, as, a, as a viable commercial enterprise for carbon management.
0: And so that the IRA obviously affects the the states. What what's the kind of view from the ground in Canada?
1: Yeah, I think generally uh, Canada, and probably it's also the case in Europe to some degree. I think countries are realizing that you know the United States has set a bar that's quite high, both from the perspective of uh, the value in the, in the case of avoided emissions for carbon capture. The United States has put you know a, a a sizable number per ton $85 per ton for geologic storage uh so the united states is now the largest buyer of carbon in the world you know by far um and uh, they've put certainty on that in terms of how you how you you'll actually get the $85 and so um that's in contrast to you know other jurisdictions like canada who've used more of a stick based approach versus the united states using a carrot uh, in Canada, it's been this idea that, you know, the polluters should pay and um, and that, you know, by uh, imposing costs on industry, that industry will be forced to change. You know, the United States has said, look, we don't want to necessarily do it that way. We're going to support industry. Uh, we'll buy the carbon, we'll pay for it. Uh, industry can go ahead and put the equipment in to manage carbon, uh, but the United States is fundamentally buying it and, uh, that's a very different approach than in Canada or Europe.
0: Okay, well, then that's our, our scene setting of kind of, you know, how you've been focused on this work and obviously where where you're sitting right now. Let's, let's dip in first to energy crisis, which, as everyone keeps reminding me, although it's in the news everywhere over here, it, it is very much about the EU. It's not the same in every region. So just give me... The kind of the top line view on on the causes of it, but also how you're how are you and and how are you know other companies across North America viewing it? What what's the perception from outside Europe?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, my, I think the the assessment that I would just put out there is that you know you've got you've got sort of two big forces. The first is you know all the nuclear power plants that have been shut off uh that's a that's a massive reduction in base load you know there's 14 nuclear plants in europe in germany and i think there's three left and you know two are still scheduled to go off this this spring and so the, the sum of that base load power is is very significant you know the second is uh with sort of in the same theme of shutting down base load was shutting down all the coal plants you know so those were base load power uh, those have been predominantly basically shut down in, in the UK uh, and 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 in Germany as well. Uh, they're obviously being turned back on now in Germany, uh, but they were shut down. And then the third is, is that, you know, there was a general view of under investing in, in the production of natural gas uh, in the North Sea and and generally with LNG imports, this idea that natural gas is a sort of bridge to nowhere fuel uh I think it became a a fairly predominant and and so you know basically what that did is it made the reliance on Russian gas go up uh that provides more leverage to Putin and uh and so he's used that leverage in this conflict uh and uh and so the idea that we're going to um you know mitigate that leverage by you know doing this massive expansion of offshore wind in the UK for example you know, I, I'm fairly skeptical around that. I think it's a way you can do it, but what you will likely have happen as a state of sort of permanence will be a, a, a deindustrialization of Europe, and you know that's not uh, something simple because a lot of those uh, industrial products that are made from natural gas, for example, like ammonia fertilizer, uh, today in Europe basically ammonia fertilizer production is shut in. Uh, that's going to cause other food problems um, as we roll into next year uh, in the global food system um and so you know there's other uses for those petrochemicals and the that are made from natural gas like for example in making Renewables making solar panels making components in the in the renewables industry and so you know there will be lots of supply chain problems that are are latent uh, that we'll see in 2023. And so this whole general idea that we're going to, you know, be able to just replace uh, basically fossil fuels with renewables—I think there's a central problem with that thesis.
0: So, uh, energy crisis is obviously one one point of this whole moment in time, and as I said, it is obviously what we hear a lot about in Europe and our European clients. You know, obviously it's it's very much front of mind. But the other piece of the puzzle is 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 a more global one, which is about uh, inflation and kind of general economic instability. So with those two pieces rubbing along together, if you come back to, you know, why does decarb do the work it does? It does it because we want to focus on industrial decarbonisation. What what do you think those two big chunky puzzle pieces are going to do to decarbonisation?
1: Yeah, so I, I created sort of these two terms that I, I like using the first called carbon paradox. And then second is uh, policy durability. And so the carbon paradox is when you have a gap in the supply and demand for energy, the tendency is in fact to fill that with the highest carbon sources of energy. So if we have a gap, we go downhill per se in technology terms. So we use more coal, burn garbage, you know, uh, we burn plastics. Uh, these are all high carbon intensity, but it's because we have 8 billion people, and so people need to burn something to make power. They're going to, and, uh, and that's just a reality. So in fact, uh, shortages of natural gas are causing, you know, higher use of coal, and that creates more emissions. So pr- the basic plan of eliminating fossil fuels, you know, just doesn't really work. You have to move within the categories. Okay, so that's point one. The second point is policy durability. So what happens when you have high energy prices is society's ability to afford the energy transition goes down because we have less money because we're spending it more on energy. And the solar panels and the electric vehicles cost more because they're all made out of fossil fuels. You know, solar panels are made out of coal, electric vehicles are made out of diesel because you have to mine the minerals. So that's the policy durability problem is that when you have high energy costs, society's ability to afford it is diminished because you have less money and it all costs more. And so then there's less stickiness to you know, or support longer term for these general policies. So both are major problems right now.
0: And what uh, when you're thinking about your oil and gas practice or the industrials you work with, are you hearing that people are therefore stopping the decarbonization work or planning, or is it just changing how they focus on it? What What's the reality of how these things actually affect the kind of rolling plans that people had?
1: Yeah, well, I think those are going to be jurisdictionally specific. I mean, you know, in Europe, I mean, the petrochemical or the industrial, you know, facilities that are shut in today, because they just don't have gas, or they can't make any of the math work. I mean, that's one way to decarbonize, you just don't, You know build petrochemicals i don't think that's a good idea for the medium term especially when you're dealing with a hostile country called russia that's right on your doorstep that's fighting a full-blown war so that that can't be the answer you know i I would say within north america there's a general view that uh industrial you know carbon capture that that is likely to play a a a leading role uh but i do think that this administration generally is uh very torn and being anti-fossil fuel fundamentally deeply uh, while still trying to sort through things like national security the economy I mean these are complex issues and that's been one of my key messages is this idea of the binary oil and gas bad wind solar good that's not a solve at all to this problem it simplifies it in a way that's actually counterproductive uh, but unfortunately, a lot of decarbonization has been framed that way. We saw it with a COP. Uh, you know, the United Nations puts out this big report that we need to stop investing in oil and gas. I mean, it's it's just a be- we need to move past it, but we we just haven't yet.
0: So clearly, um, part of what what you're saying is is not just how wider society views it, but it's how governments have been treating it and that they've been getting. Getting policy wrong in trying to fix the energy crisis and fix this situation. So, so what if you were going to sort of go to to Canada, to the states, to do more to the European governments? What what should those governments be doing to to address both the short term crunch and crisis, but but also to enable this big reduction in greenhouse gases that that's needed? What 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 is it that they should do if they were going to get it right?
1: yeah well I think I think firstly I would speak to you know the oil and gas industry what it needs to become more on board with the possible solutions so that's point one the the oil and gas industry needs to understand its role in all this uh, but I think fundamentally that'll eases the pathway for then government and the people in government who are you know who are in the climate department. Many of those people have grown up believing that the answer is simple. You just eliminate fossil fuels, right? It's just ingrained in people's DNA that that's how it is. I don't think that's correct. I think that the answers are in the energy mix evolving to be much more sustainable. So what does that mean? Firstly, it means just eliminating coal. I mean, if human beings stop using coal, we would make a massive dent in this issue. Our view of net zero is that we need to like triple natural gas consumption and use globally, and and then you know equip that with carbon capture, uh, and then a, a large amount of nature based solutions, also nuclear and also a lot of renewables, and so it's more of an energy mix that like reflects that we have eight billion people, and those eight billion people want to use more uh, higher quality energy sources. And so it is a very that what I just said, I think is a shift uh, versus what is out there as a general idea, which is a are you know we're gonna you know save our way to you know re- reducing greenhouse ma- uh, emissions through you know making energy really expensive and causing people to have to use less and, or switch to you know renewables. I, I think that's deeply flawed uh, as a general idea. Uh, but that's a, the dominant idea today. So we've been, we've, and I, you know, look. I think at the end of the day, the the conflict in Europe is one item on the list of highlighting that that's a busted idea. Uh, food shortages that will occur. We're going to see them next year. Um, lo- like very serious food problems. I think that'll be another indicator that this basic idea is is, is a busted set of ideas. So you know, it's going to be a process for governments to respond. It Look, it's been easy for governments to uh, say that, you know, we're going to make energy more expensive when energy for the last decade was cheap.
0: Apart from in the UK, I would add, because if you talk to any of our clients based here and they're like, yeah, there was nothing cheap about energy in the UK. And now it's worse. But yeah, I understand your your point. So within that, within that kind of discussion of that need for a sustainable energy mix, to use your words, like where where does re- uh, renewables fit into that, and what should governments do to incentivize development of that versus other more sustainable fuels? Do you think what what's the right balance and what are the mechanisms to get that right balance in place?
1: Yeah, it, it's a good question, I, and I one of the things that I deeply believe is that there needs to be a just a price on carbon. And let the energy mix sort itself out so uh because otherwise you you could you run into central planning so i think one of the underlying reasons we are in this energy crisis is we've had like central planning where people have said look renewables are the answer and fossil fuels need to go away but what happens if they're wrong (laughs) what happens if that actually causes a series of problems they didn't anticipate so that central planning just doesn't work and it never works when you have like big forces like the energy system not to say there isn't room for regulations there needs to be regulations there needs to be a price on carbon in my view uh so that the market figures out those economic signals but like you know let's just do a simple example like in Ohio you know it doesn't make sense to put up solar panels in the way that it does so in California just simple regional realities ought to drive The energy decisions in those particular regions, you know, there are um, so it's a complex question it's not there's no like simple, you know 32nd canned answer other than prices and market forces work Uh, carbon and emissions are just another. um, You know, driver to people's decision frameworks, and I think that the market would does respond to carbon price signals uh and and that's our just my general mindset and so at, at the right carbon price a nuclear plant you know will uh make a lot of sense uh you, you'll see the benefit of nuclear uh with with carbon pricing and so i think in general like when i look at the inflation reduction act just generally in the united states i mean the u.s has tried to put carbon price signals in to the market you know by being effectively the buyer of carbon, you know, be it because they're providing an investment tax credit or a production tax credit for a solar panel, you, know, you can impute what was the carbon price for that. Uh, what, similarly with hydrogen incentives or nuclear incentives or whatever. And so um, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, my view generally is that carbon prices allow market forces to do the right allocations regionally on the energy system.
0: So when you when you're looking uh, at where we are right now, then we talked about some of the factors that have led to the energy crisis and other instability. You've talked about why some of those policy drivers have not not been helpful. So if you if you imagine yourself split between the the industrial side of this and the government side of this, what, what are the next steps that you think each side should be taking? If you're in industry, what should you be focused on right now? If you are in government, what are the most impactful things that could happen in the short term?
1: I think generally for me, it's permitting and regulations around approving energy infrastructure, and so the anti-pipeline people, who let's call them the anti-fossil fuel people, just generally, they they have been the most successful blocking energy infrastructure development in Europe and in Canada and the United States, and so this playbook like literally needs to get tossed because that's where the central planning has been the most pernicious you've used a regulatory system to say well look you know this can be a stranded asset this is you know we don't want this it locks in fossil fuels and so that you know the market you know people have shown up and said look we'll invest the capital and some regulator and any pipeline NGO you know delays it in court or kills the project ultimately in my mind that's the central problem we've had we've used the regulatory system uh, successfully through the anti-fossil fuel people to block infrastructure development. And so now you've got this sort of morass where, you know, uh, we've got, you know, Im- imbalances of supply and demand for energy and industry is not really going to be able to respond to those um, and- until you are s- find ways to solve getting energy where it is to where it needs to be. So on, on the
0: industrial side, on a, a previous recent conversation that i had the the guest was suggesting that actually this moment in time is making industrials more focused on their own energy independence do you think that's is that real is that possible or i don't know yeah but i guess i'm coming back to my question of what would you be focused on if you were on the industrial side of this and and is industrial energy independence actually a possible route route out of this
1: Yeah, I think this is also, you know, no, no disrespect, but this feels like another one of these flawed arguments where it's like, okay, well, so some German, you know, petrochemical facility is now going to become 15% more efficient because, you know, it's, it's, it's starred for gas, uh, but then that same product's going to get produced in, you know, Indonesia using coal uh, because they can produce it for, you know, 20% the cost. So you made the earth worse. So thanks, you know, thanks for your input, right? Like the earth doesn't care where the emission comes from. And so this is the carbon paradox problem, which is if you just if you move the production of whatever it is that you otherwise would have made in Germany to Indonesia and they use coal, you made the problem worse, right? Or or similarly, like right now, you know, in, in just in general, uh um you know people are are basically burning garbage they're burning plastics in the world today at an unprecedented rate because we don't have enough LNG right so that in 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 Asia where they otherwise would have bought LNG it's all going to Europe because of the war you know now they're they're just burning tires and burning plastic and burning garbage to produce their energy that, that they otherwise would have used natural gas for so so I think these are these are some of the flaws that when, when you when you try to, you know, focus on these sort of uh, sort of simplistic ways of looking at energy, they, the, the problems just show up somewhere else.
0: So what what is the answer? Do you think you you sort of explained a bit like from the government perspective, you'd be focusing on those permitting and approval processes. What 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 is it that the the industrials in this mix can do for themselves now and in, in the shorter term?
1: well i think you know again that's sort of jurisdictionally specific on what industrial users of energy are able to do in europe i mean they might just stay shut off for a while so i guess that's that's not a good thing uh, at all uh, even if it causes emissions to be measured in germany lower the the emissions will have just showed up somewhere else because that product at that petrochemical facility will just get made somewhere else and probably using coal I think the basic answer is is stepping back and realizing that the energy mix is likely needs to be one where natural gas use like triples on Earth, at least uh, where we try to like not use coal uh, as a goal for the next like 50 years, where nuclear and renewables play roles where, where it fundamentally makes sense for those uh, energy sources to, to do that and doing this on an aggregate global basis. Right. So it's it's it's, so, you know, one of the classic things in Canada, you know, I can speak to that, you know, people are like, well, we don't want to produce more LNG in Canada because it'll cause emissions as measured in Canada to increase. You know, this this is a flaw. It's like, well, yeah, but then whoever buys that LNG is not going to use coal to make that same megawatt hour of power. So how do we fully think that through in terms of the full cycle global nature of the energy system and i'll repeat my point today we're making the problem worse like just fundamentally the path we're on is making the problem worse coal use this year will be at an all-time high we have structural energy shortage globally which means we're going to burn coal we're going to burn garbage we're going to burn tires we're going to burn plastic and uh we could have burned natural gas and you know we didn't so uh we have to basically stop making the problem worse by i think having a more fundamental view of the energy system and what is an energy mix that's actually possible.
0: A more nuanced view i guess is the point isn't it rather than as you said less less kind of black and white binary binary uh, solutions thinking. Um so the, so putting putting this year behind us as we soon will what and i imagine your investors and your partners are also talking with you about this but what's your outlook for 2023 what what are you yeah what are you betting on next year in terms of do you, how do you think the energy crisis will continue in perpetuity or i don't know yeah give me give me your sense of what you make of this instability that we've been living through and and how it's going to roll forward
1: yeah, I think you know, I, I you know, I, I would say generally. I mean, there's, there's sort of the structural side of energy, which is where we're deeply underinvested, we're undersupplied energy, and um, that's, um, that's, that's a problem that's going to get worse next year and the year after. I think um, we could also have cyclical changes within that context. So, um, you know, there's a serious recession in Europe right now. And so because there is an insufficient amount of energy, the economy has had to shrink. Um, And so that that causes prices to come off a little bit, which they have, you know, natural gas prices in Europe come off the peak. Uh, And so you can have less acute uh, pain uh, as, as sort of delivered through the price mechanism. We're sort of seeing that in oil right now. I mean, oil's 70 bucks, oils come off. Uh, but the structural undersupply problem remains. And so what that means is that we remain vulnerable to various supply shocks. So if the war, um, you know, grows, uh, in other countries, uh, generally the, uh, this war in, in Ukraine, it, it could spill into other, uh, countries. It, um, that, that could then cause another source of a supply shock. Uh, There may be a flare up in the Middle East, for example, in energy production. Uh, Same thing with food production. I think we're going to see more stress in in emerging markets, generally in middle income country markets, uh, as food prices go up. So that means more government instability. uh, um, And so I think we're going to see sort of these pulses and waves of um where you know cyclically you, you can have economic you know shrink prices come down something else goes wrong on the supply side we get a spike the economy's got to shrink and 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 cause uh, you, you know uh, the the supply and demand to, to re uh, rebalance so it's kind of a negative view to be honest with you i don't i think it, until we have a, a way to grow energy supply globally you know, basically the global economy has to rebalance because, you know, for example, someone who's uses a, an extra, you know, half a liter of gasoline in their you know, motorcycle to go to work, that person's going to out-compete someone in Canada or the UK going to, you know, a warm weather holiday in, in Mexico or Spain or wherever, you know, and so that person who is going to their make a living, with that little bit of energy, that on on the on the margin, that, that has a lot more benefit for that person. And, and there's seven billion of those people in the world, and there's a billion of us in the Western world who are are sort of overusing energy. Uh, but our economies reflect that. I mean, the our, the you know, travel and entertainment and all these sort of things that we we take for granted. So our, our ability to uh, spend and, and afford energy will go down. Uh, because we're basically going to get out-competed by the person who that extra half a liter of gasoline means they can go to work for two weeks in their motorcycle. Uh, and so this is going to be a painful process um, and ultimately worse for the emissions because we're those are just going to use more coal and, and higher intensity sources.
0: So coming back to the industrials that are that are our client base at DCARB and obviously companies that you're watching and talking with all the time again if if you're in their shoes and you've got their their balance sheets to invest in the best way possible what what would you be doing to you know as much as possible protect against future similar shocks i i totally get i kind of asked this question i guess once before in a way and your point was it's a nightmare and you know they maybe have to press pause for a while but what what would you be doing if you were in those teams to 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 protect as best as possible against this kind of rolling set of pulses that are coming their way.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, the, the this may be a tough answer for a lot of people to hear, but the the answer is just move everything to the United States. Uh, why bother anywhere else? The United States has the Inflation Reduction Act. They they have full blown support now for carbon capture. There's incredible resources of natural gas uh, in the United States. Um, you know unfortunately that's what the 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 market is going to do is you're going to move industrial production uh to the united states and then um export those products back to europe uh in particular um and because the alternative is you could ship more lng to europe which will likely happen but the, you're not going to be able to solve it. You may as well just make the plastic in the U.S. and then ship the plastic over to the, to Europe or the finished products. So, so unfortunately, that's what the market is likely going to drive uh, people towards is is investing industrial production into where there's you know um, abundant energy, which is sort of regionally specific um the, the the unfortunate part of this is at least in, in the United States there's high standards relative to say India or China right where if in, if industry sips moves to India or China you know that's going to be coal <laughs> those two countries are natively rich in coal and so coal use will likely go up so it, I I don't I don't think this idea and maybe what you're driving at is you know should in, industrials in Europe you know, start building out more green hydrogen or or whatever. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, like, like that, the problem is, is just beyond um, those kind of minor micro solutions. These are, these are big macro global forces that are, and energy is one of these where you, you know, it matters what your energy costs are and your cost of production.
0: Okay. Well, that's a um, really good solid set of answers to some tricky questions right now Um, and i really appreciate you coming back and sort of contributing that craig always good to talk to you so thank you very much
1: okay thanks alex
0: many thanks for listening to the decarb connect podcast we work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day if you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports, or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex, at ac at Thanks for listening.